so many new ways are coming out to stimulate the brain, you know, between, you know, neurofeedback and, you know, um, uh, some of the photobiomodulation therapies. And I mean, it's just, it's a whole exciting world. When, when I went to medical school, which was in the 80s, we were taught that you, by 18, you had all the neurons you were ever going to have. And it was just going to be downhill from there. And that was the teaching. But, you know, now we know that we can make new neurons and new synaptic connections up until the time of death. There was a really cool study uh, some years ago where they took people who were about to die and they put them in the uh, spec scanner and they had them do tasks that were activating their memory centers and they were able to show that even a very terminally ill person uh, later in life could still make these new connections in their brain. So that's the super exciting stuff. If we can remove what's causing the dementia or the neurodegeneration um, before it's too late, then we have you know all kinds of ways now to re-stimulate our brains and get them back to functioning better. Welcome back, Neurohackers. My name is Jacqueline, and this is episode number 51 of the Collective Insights podcast. Today we have Dr. Kat Toops, a functional medicine psychiatrist, joining us to share her latest research and work on dementia. If you know someone who has had dementia impact their lives, then please share this episode with them. We want to thank all of you guys for listening. Our podcast now has over a quarter of a million downloads, and we're number 28 in top shows for the entire category of science and medicine on iTunes. Thank you so much for your support and all the lovely reviews you leave on our podcast. This is how we're able to reach new people with our podcast, and we're so grateful for you being on this journey with us. The show is made possible by Neurohacker Collective. To thank you for your support, use coupon code PODCAST51, all overcase PODCAST51, for an additional 15% off your first order at neurohacker.com. Now, without further ado, let's jump into the show. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I am thrilled to be joined finally by Dr. Kat Toops. So Dr. Toops is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and a certified practitioner with IFM, or the Institute for Functional Medicine. She was formerly an assistant professor at UC Davis, where she was the inpatient residency training director and later served as the founder and medical director medical director of Bay Area Research Institute, a clinical trials research center in Lafayette. For 12 years, she was there as the principal investigator on over 100 trials. That is super impressive, including 20 failed trials for Alzheimer's drugs. At that point, she realized that the elusive cure for brain and psychiatric illnesses was not going to be found in a pill. So where do we find it, Dr. Toops? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the quest, isn't it? But it's definitely not found in a pill. And, you know, I mean, to jump into the dementia thing, really 20 different clinical trials for Alzheimer's and mild cognitive impairment and not a single one worked. And, you know, the prevailing theory of Alzheimer's has been, okay, you get these amyloid plaques and this tau beta protein and it gums up the working of your brain. So I actually did trials that could wipe out that amyloid plaque. People said, okay, that's the problem. Let's wipe out the amyloid. We had drugs and we could you know, do the PET scan and we could verify that we had diminished the levels of amyloid plaque, but people did not get better. They didn't get better. So that is a downstream problem 
And, you know, now the, the way that we come at it from functional medicine is, well, like all things, why, what is the root cause of that amyloid? What caused that amyloid to deposit in the first place? And so, you know, the answer to that is multifactorial. Um, you know, there's so many factors. And, and what I've learned is that amyloid is it's a protective substance, just like if you cut yourself, you know, your clotting factors will come and they'll make a blood clot to wall off that bleeding and protect it. Well, if something is damaging in your brain, it, your brain will secrete that amyloid to like a Band-Aid to, you know, wall off that neuron and try to protect it. And the problem, of course, becomes if that happens a little, great. But if you're getting bombarded by chronic threats to your brain that are activating that amyloid response, then in effect, you're screwed, right? If it's, you can't turn off that response because you're constantly having triggers, um, then that's the problem. And, and one of the other things that's worth mentioning with regard to amyloid while we're on that subject is, um, you know, with the genetics of dementia, of Alzheimer's dementia, we know that, um, that, there, that there is a risk factor with an ApoE4 allele if you if you're a carrier of that and it, and it definitely increases your risk but the one of the ways that it does that is that when you have the amyloid response turned on you'll have a more exuberant response so i don't have an apoe4 i'm a 3-3 and so if my brain gets some damage i might make some amyloid but if you're a 4-4 or a 2-4 you're gonna make a lot more amyloid in your brain than I make in my brain. So the genetics are a factor with that regard. The um, genetics gonna... are so fascinating, right? Because there's a reason that the ApoE44 probably persists in our environment, in our genetic information, right? It, it's protective in some way. And even what you're describing, this beta amyloid, having a robust response to a, a trigger or a, a perturbation is sometimes a good thing. Right. Well, you know, it was definitely a good thing in early man when it first evolved. And, you know, there must be some reason that it's still propagated in the gene pool. But this was a, such a fascinating gene because um, when, when we were primates in the trees and we had some mutations that allowed us to turn into um, to Homo sapiens, then uh, one of these was the ApoE4. And and it's a, it's a pro-inflammatory gene. So it turns on inflammation, that amyloid is an inflammatory response. So, um, you know, early man came down out of the protection of the trees and now he's at risk for more predators or getting cut by a stick and getting wounded. And so having this um, pro-inflammatory gene helped our healing, right? And each time we get the flu, we need inflammation to heal us. If we get an infection in our skin, we need we need that inflammation. So so it was an adaptive thing. Um, it, it helped them with all of the, the dangers they were facing. And early man didn't, I don't know, they lived like, what, 35 years? Maybe it pushed out eventually to 40, you know, there wasn't a long lifespan. So, so it wasn't such a problem of having chronic inflammation. But now with our lifespans getting longer and longer, if you're having genes that are chronically keeping, say, your blood vessels inflamed, because that's one of the other issues with this ApoE4, um, it's also called the fat bucket gene. And besides being pro-inflammatory, it, uh, it promoted storage of the calories as fat because early man didn't get to eat every day, right? They might kill the woolly mammoth and then have a feast and then they might not have anything for days. Or, and so being able to store the calories as fat gives you a reserve of fuel when there's nothing to eat. But what happens now with our longer lifespans is 
if we're constantly storing everything as fat and it stores in the blood vessels, then what happens? It's a risk for heart disease, stroke, you know, things like that. And so, um, so maybe there is something still keeping that ApoE4 in our gene pool because it it is there. Um, but I think, you know, the big thing for people to know, like I, I always tell my patients, okay, it's useful for us to know about your ApoE4 status for us to understand that you are going to maybe store food, the fats more than other people. And we can talk later about ketogenic diets and the like. That's exactly what I want to know about. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I really want people to know that genes don't equal destiny, mm-hmm. right? And we know now that what's more important than those genes is epigenetics and, you know, the things that turn our genes on and off and express them for better or for worse. So, you know, if you know that you have a tendency to store fats, then you need to, you know, you need to be on top of it. You need to do all of the things, you know, that that help you, you know, which come to diet and exercise and sleep and all of those kind of factors that we need for general health as well. But people with the ApoE4, they just need to try a little harder. But we have plenty of people with ApoE4s that don't get Alzheimer's. So that's where the, the self-determination comes in. I just don't want people to think, I have this and it's all over. I'm going to get Alzheimer's. That's not how I want people to think about it. So tell me some of the differences. If somebody does have ApoE44, then are there variations on the protocol that you would give them because of that and because of this fat metabolism. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, I mean, one of the, one of the things, um, that we've had some utility with helping cognition for all kinds of problems is using the ketogenic diet. And when we put people into ketosis and and that means restricting, restricting all of your carbs and your sugars. And so that instead of burning, you know, carbs and sugar for fat, for fuel, you're going to burn fat for fuel. And there's something about being in ketosis that enhances the clarity of people's thinking. Some people, it doesn't make a difference, but other people, it's quite a profound difference. Mm -hmm. And we've known for maybe almost a century now that being in a ketogenic state does change the neurotransmission because it was first used for children with intractable seizures that were not responding to medications. And when they they would on the first programs they would have the kids there for a couple of weeks they would change their diet put them into ketosis and they could stop these seizures from happening so so definitely there's something interesting with the brain clarity for people um, and so we've been playing around with that for our patients with cognitive decline and for some people it's very helpful um, the problem comes in the longer term if you're having a super high fat diet what will happen as far as storing that and driving your lipids up? And the answer is actually, we don't know. It can go both ways. Mm-hmm. So I've seen people that have ApoE4 and they go on a ketogenic diet and their lipids get better. Wow. I, but I do have some and people. And you've seen the other. Start going up and, you know, and so then it's, uh, you know, weighing out, do we want to just shift to a, a more, you know, general anti-inflammatory diet or paleo type diet? Um, and, but usually I'll have people, you know, maybe do the ketosis for three months and then I'll take a look at the lipids again and look at all those advanced lipid particles to, to see what's happening with the various markers. So it really can go both ways. I I feel like it's worth trying. And in three months, you're not going to be doing 
you know, major damage if someone's lipids start to creep up. That's such a testament to the individuality of this process, right? It, it's not yeah. a one-size-fits-all approach. It's very yeah. much, let's take a look. We're both in this together learning what the best thing is for the individual in front of you. But using the guidance of um, functional medicine, Dr. Bredesen's work, and, um, and all the work that's come before us, and yeah. certainly all the work you've done in psychiatry, one question about fish oil. So like when you describe inflammation and that these beta amyloid plaques are, they're an inflammatory response. Um, and there's this interesting fat storage potential metabolism with the 4-4 genetics. What about fish oils? We think of those as very anti-inflammatory, but there's some caution around that. Can you describe it? Well, um, you know, the, the fish oils are mixtures of omega-3s, omega-6s, omega-9s, and, um, and so it's, um, I know there's been some newer stuff lately that I haven't really sunk my teeth into yet, but definitely in general, um, there's very clear data that they are anti-inflammatory, that they actually do help with heart disease, with lipids, with prevention, um, you know, obviously they're, they, uh, they, they thin the blood slightly, which is why the surgeons want you to stop it for a week before you have a surgery. It's not a dramatic thinning response. And some surgeons these days tell you, you don't need to stop it, but you know, perhaps at the kind of doses we're using with our patients that are mm-hmm. suffering with brain-based disorders, they, they probably should stop it a week before. Um, but it's, it's quite a, an amazing thing. Uh, you know, maybe we could flip to a, a psychiatric notion here for a second, but the early studies uh, that came out were using eight grams a day. And that's a lot of fish oil, right? It's a lot of pills to take, a lot of expense. But um, And so we used to start people on the eight grams a day. And over time, we decreased, decreased, because who wants to take eight grams a day of fish oil? Wow. Um, but there was a new paper that just came out recently, and it was a meta-analysis of all of the studies with fish oil for depression and anxiety. And it really did show that what worked was around eight grams a day. Wow. What I think is that if you're deficient and you saturate all those receptors with your eight grams a day, it's because then it becomes a steady state. I don't think you need eight grams a day to maintain anything like that. And I've seen that clinically. So if I have somebody that comes in with a profound depression or bad anxiety and they're not on any fish oil, I'll do a, a, a trick that I call fish oil jumpstart. I actually learned this years ago from Kelly Brogan. And, and I'll have them take um, eight grams a day for a week, or I have them, uh, the, 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 the supplement that I use, basically it's five capsules twice a day for a week, then four capsules twice a day for a week, then three capsules twice a day for a week, and then go down to two twice a day, which is about mm-hmm. three grams, right? That's okay. kind of as a maintenance dose. Yeah, exactly. And it can make such a profound difference. One of my patients with OCD wrote me and he said, this has helped me so much. Can I stay on a higher dose? <laughs> I said, sure, yeah. you know, but, but what you see is over time, people will decrease that. So, um, so the fish oils definitely are having clear uh, effects on, on our brain and cognition. I mean, we know the EPA component is anti-inflammatory, is uh, more effective for our brain and our cognitive function. But, but we need both because what's happening in our brains with dementia is an inflammatory state. 
it's so exciting to me because you can talk about the whole spectrum of psychiatry, the anxiety, the depression, bipolar, I mean, all of it. And then dementia includes a lot of that, right? Because as people start to experience dementia, there is associated anxiety and depression. So knowing both is is so helpful for patients. Um, I want to go back into your research. So tell me more about the research studies that you've been doing lately um, and what those look like. Yeah. um, Well, um, I I did close down my clinical trial center some years ago when I got sick myself with autoimmune disease and dementia, which is how I learned about especially how to, you know, work with functional medicine and apply it to dementia. But but we're actually finally starting a prospective clinical trial um, with Dale Bredesen, a grant that he uh, was given from a private individual. And we've been working on it like two and a half years, you know, trying to work out details of the protocol. It's been quite a road. So, um, so we do have the IRB approval and we actually just started screening this week. Um, We have three investigators. So the plan is that we're going to do 30 patients, 10 at each of the three investigative sites. And it's going to be a nine month trial. And um, we have, you know, all kinds of support for our patients in in this trial. And, um, you know, we hope we're going to, you know, one, just have some clear prospective data because so many people say this doesn't work, this can't work. The academics are saying, no, there's no hope um, for dementia. But as you and I both know, and we're seeing it clinically all all the time, people that um, can either halt their cognitive decline or dementia or even get better from that. So, um, so it's going to be a general functional medicine approach and, um, hopefully maybe a year from now we'll be closing the study and, and getting, getting some more data there. Congratulations. I, and I can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing in this, right? Because there are so many people who are under the impression that Alzheimer's is a death sentence and, or that, there's no option there that, that that once that you've been diagnosed there's only downhill to go so it's heartbreaking to see not only that person at the height of their you know experience and wisdom that they have to give mm-hmm. to the world and their communities their families they're mm-hmm. taken from it and not only them but in this disease they take usually a caregiver with them either a spouse or a child can't you know that their their probably grown child has to take care of them and then that person can't parent their kids at this point or they can't work and so economically it affects communities and families certainly and there are options out there and so many people aren't aware of them. So you doing this work and proving not only to, to people who might suffer from it, but their families and to other providers that, hey, you can have some confidence in this approach. You can do it. We see this happening every day. And I know you and I have that benefit because we see it at our clinics, but to show other people so that it catches on is just, I think, the most profound work that needs to happen right now. Yeah, we need more numbers, you know, I mean, you know, we have a lot of anecdotal stories. And the more we can get numbers, even in a controlled setting where we can gather the data where we have the MOCA scores, and we have the CNS vital sign neuropsychiatric testing scores, and we have different rating scales, and we have the head scans, and, you know, and the volumetric head scans where we can actually perhaps capture improvement. Um, So yeah, it's an exciting thing. Really, in my practice, 
I can count on one hand the people that it hasn't worked for. And typically what I mean by not working is that they didn't improve, not that they right. continue to get worse, but right. that we, we haven't fully turned the ship around, so to speak. Right, right. But that is a success, right? Because otherwise they're going down. Compared to the other options on the table, it's a huge yeah. success. Well, and you know, I have a patient, somebody that I've worked with for a couple of years, and they do everything right. And she has not really improved. Um, but I saw her neurologist recently, who he sees a couple of my patients with cognitive. And he told me, I am just thrilled with how well she's doing. He said, it's just amazing to me. She's still traveling the world. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's a super exciting thing because, I mean, it's now been a couple of years. And the rate of decline that was happening before that, I would expect her to be a lot worse. So it was, it was validating for me because, of course, I keep trying harder. And what else have we missed? What else can we do? Mm-hmm. But, and and so to have that validation from a neurologist saying I'm thrilled with with how she's doing right it's so funny to see the the contrast for us it would be like oh I'm so frustrated she's not 100% better whatever right but then put in the context of what people are seeing and in the conventional approach yeah it's just a world of difference so let's jump into some of the nuances of the approach um can you give me a a sense of if I were a patient or a family member of someone with dementia who shows up in your office, where would you start? Yeah, well, um, I mean, the beginnings, well, let me just say, with dementia, we're racing the clock, right? The brain is degenerating. And so I do feel like it's incumbent upon us to test as much as we can, as fast as we can. Because, you know, as Dr. Bredesen says, you fix, you know, 10 of the leaking holes in the roof, and you still got 10 others leaking, your roof is still leaking. I think he says 36 holes. But, you know, it's, (laughs) We want to find all of those factors. And so we can't just fix some of them. Um, but the fundamental approach is you're starting with your gut and your diet, right? Our gut is the root of our immune system. What are we feeding uh, our body? And so like all things, you know, for me, I always have people bring in a three-day food diary. I look hard at what they're eating and, you know, work with them on that approach. So, you know, things that they can work on while I do the testing, of course, are changing their diet, Mm -hmm. you know, looking hard at their exercise patterns. I have patients that come in and they've never exercised in their whole life. Oh, wow. And, you know, they have to get moving. I mean, we know that the exercise increases our BDNF, our brain-derived neurotrophic factor that, you know, helps to make new synaptic connections in our brain. And, and truly the best validated stuff that we have to change our brain is exercise and meditation. The best those, deals in medicine. Those two things are, you know, you have to put those in the protocol. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't have to be, you know, a traditional meditation. It can be guided meditation. We use heart math you know, which I call meditation for non-meditators. It can be some of my patients are into Tai Chi or Qigong, and, but they get it once or twice a week. I'm like, oh, no, you need to be doing it every day kind of thing. And so, you know, those are the factors for any chronic disease and for general health, right? Your diet, your exercise, your, you know, mind-body meditative stress reduction and your sleep. And so sleep, of course, we've learned in the last, uh, what, two years now that we have the glymphatic system in our brain that's our our washing machine that churns up while we're sleeping and cleans out all the accumulated toxins of the day. And so if you're sleeping six hours a night and 
instead of eight hours a night, you're depriving your brain every night of having that, you know, cleansing and purifying response there. And so, you know, looking hard at people's sleep patterns. And now, of course, we're getting all kinds of cool, you know, ways to track our sleep and aura rings and sleep tracking devices on our our cell phones. And I think that's all, you know, very helpful. But um, sleep apnea is a huge factor. And I do test all of my patients for sleep apnea. I found sleep apnea, within. you know, the typical sleep apnea profile is a burly man with a thick neck and, you know, maybe, you know, some weight that's pushing up and obstructing the airway, but it can happen in anybody. So I think that's one thing not to miss. And, and, um, you know, I, I lease a device that people can do the home sleep apnea, uh, studies where, and it, that's really helpful because we can do it over like three or four nights. Cause sometimes we'll see one night that looks really good. And sometimes then we'll see another night that looks really bad. So, um, so I like these home sleep devices. They're measuring, it's a, a high intensity pulse oximeter. Mm-hmm. So it's measuring um, the, the pulse ox measures the oxygen levels in the brain. And it also measures the heart rate variability. So you can see even sometimes that people will have a brief period where they don't get enough oxygen and then the heart rate goes crazy for a long time. So they may not look like sleep apnea, but they're having tachycardia all night long. Right, some kind of dysfunctional sleep pattern right. that's going to prevent them from getting that detoxifying effect. Exactly. And keeping their nervous system revved mm. up and keeping them in a, you know, sympathetic sympathetical uh, to healing. So, you know, we want people to be in a parasympathetic mode to promote their healing. So, you know, that's the chronic, that's where everybody starts. And, and I see, you know, lots of the books, I get all the books that are, whatever's being written about Alzheimer's and dementia, you know, keep up and, and people are saying, you know, diet, exercise, mm-hmm. meditation, that's where you start. Yeah. But what I think that a lot of people are missing is the other three factors. And I think those are toxins, infections, and lack of hormones. And let me say first about the lack of hormones. So hormones, because this is an, an easy thing to test and to fix and to remediate, hormones are trophic for the brain, meaning they support the life of the brain. And we know now that we have receptors in our brain for estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, pregnenolone, DHEA, all these neurohormones. They're, they're not Yes, vitamin D is a hormone, exactly. And so they're not just, um, you know, the sexual hormones are not just for our sexual functioning and reproduction, they're for our cognitive function in our brain. And so we know that um, there's beautiful data that once a woman goes through menopause and her estrogen levels drop, the neurons start degenerating immediately. Um, There was a good study that came out of Stanford. Natalie Rasgon was the... um, chief uh, primary author on that that study, and she's published a lot in this area, but they took women that had been on hormone replacement, and they randomized them either to stay on it or go off of it, and they followed them for two years, and they did head scans, and they did neuropsych testing, and what they found is at the end of those two years, 100% of the women who stopped the hormones had declined cognitively and had evidence of neurodegeneration. And it didn't matter whether they had been on the 
the typical synthetic hormones, the old Primarin, Provera that we know, um, of course, confers risk for cancer and, you know, is not the form we give to our patients anymore. But it didn't matter which form. If they were getting those hormones, um, they maintained better brain functioning. Wow. So, so that's not equivocal. Like this is not there. Like there's a question. You just said 100% of the women right. in the study. They all, yes, they all declined, you know, uh, more than the people that stayed on their hormones. And this, I believe in this cohort, they were people that had some risk already for cognitive decline. Mm-hmm. So um, so they might have declared it a little sooner. But, but think about it clinically. We see it all the time. Um, you know, women get in their 40s and, you know, perimenopause is a 10-year process before the actual menopause fin- transition finishes. And people start complaining of their memory. Mm-hmm. And I would happen to me, um, I was having uh, word finding difficulty around the time of my periods, I would say, open the door when I meant open the window or, you know, just, I I mean, I was shocked. The wrong words were coming out of my mouth. And I went to see my doctor because I was also having killer premenstrual migraines. And I said, something's going on here. And, and I, I am not able to articulate the words I want to say. And she said, welcome to perimenopause. She said, This is pathic mnemonic of perimenopause, meaning it's one of the hallmarks. And so I was placated. Oh, okay, this is perimenopause. I was placated for like 10 minutes. (laughs) And then then I started thinking about it. I said, okay, okay, I'm an Alzheimer's researcher. And I know that if we live long enough as women, one out of the the rate of of Alzheimer's is 50% past 85 for women, right? Either you're going to get it or I'm going to get it. Mm -hmm. And so I started thinking... Well, maybe those of us that are symptomatic with perimenopause, perhaps we're going to be the ones that are going to come up with the Alzheimer's down the road. Um, So it's there's a whole body of data around that now hormones and the trophisms with the the hormones and and even with uh, to diverge a little to head trauma. Um, I had done a, a course with um, Mark Gordon, who works with veterans that have had um, blast trauma, and a lot of them, have, of course, have terrible PTSD from the effects uh, uh, both of the emotional traumas and the brain damage that dysregulates their emotional responses. And what he does with these patients is he fixes all their hormones. He gets all those hormones that I mentioned up, you know, uh, above the middle of the range. I think he tends to use somewhat higher doses. And he gave us case after case of people that were able to get off of all kinds of psychiatric meds and reclaim their lives, get back to work, save their marriages. So we just can't discount how powerful these hormones are for our brain. And then what happens though is there's other factors besides menopause and andropause. So we have andropause when the men men will gradually, you know, lose their testosterone levels over time. It's just not as abrupt as women. But we're seeing I'm I'm seeing men in their twenties and thirties with no testosterone now. And we're all seeing that more and more. I, I think in the past we just didn't test it. But what happens is that anything that affects your head, be it head trauma, infections like Lyme disease or Epstein-Barr, things that get in the brain, the herpes viruses, um, or toxins that can accumulate in the brain, um, like mercury and lead or chemicals, um, they disrupt the HPA axis, the hypothalamus to pituitary mm-hmm. that then sends the hormonal signals to you know, our adrenals, our sex organs, our thyroid. And so 
um, we're, we're seeing so many people these days that their hormones are whacked out. So that's not a hard thing to fix. I mean, obviously, we want to understand um, if it's not simply menopause and andropause, which are going to happen no matter what, um, but but we want to know what other factors are disrupting the, the um, hypothalamus-pituitary axis in the brain. And it's interesting that one thing I learned uh, recently, the brain makes its own estrogen, and it makes its own testosterone and it makes its own progesterone and so we actually have sources in our brain to supply those hormones for our brain um, but you know when we have all these other factors that are disrupting our, our brain function mechanically then it's going to affect those hormone levels and there's so much overlap here right you've already talked about the importance of importance of sleep and perimenopause another hallmark of perimenopause is changes in sleep patterns and inability yep. to sleep and certainly night sweats and that being disrupted of sleep we also see that in head trauma right there's yes. increases in anxiety and trouble sleeping and then what's the answer a benzo a benzodiazepine medication right. which puts you at further risk for cognitive decline exactly. so it's sort of this self-perpetuating cycle that you get on if you aren't looking for alternatives, if you aren't actively doing the work to look for how, how to get out of that, that cycle and that pattern of further degradation. Right, right, exactly. And, you know, I think the head, head trauma, um, I, I did a, a, um, an interview with, um, oh gosh, I can see his face and I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, wonderful guy who has a, um, has a podcast on uh, on head trauma and TBI. And when they, they first asked me to do that, I said, well, oh, his name's uh, Kevin Ballister. And uh, he has a uh, Adventures in Brain Injury podcast. It's, he does some wonderful work. Um, he had a severe, severe life-threatening head injury himself. And so he learned, you know, how to rehab and get his own brain back. Amazing story. But I said, well, I'm not an expert in, in TBI, but here's what I think about TBI. And it's the same way we approach all of these things with the brain, right? How can we nourish the brain? What does it need to function? And what is damaging it? What are all the factors? And how can we, you know, rectify all those factors and then give the brain what it needs to heal? And so it's the, the approach is really fairly similar for dementia, for head trauma, for, you know, psychiatric disorders that are disrupting the brain function. Right. Yeah. There, there's all of these things. And this is what Dr. Bredesen says is you can have one symptom, dementia, let's call it dementia or anxiety or right. depression right. or insomnia, right. whatever it is, but right. there's a different pathways you can take to get there. So our job, both you and I, is to figure out, what, okay, what pathway did you take to get here? And then how do we go backwards? How do we follow that path back and right. get rid of the perturbations, get rid of the thing that is that your brain feels like it has to protect itself from? Right. And then the, and then the next frontier is, you know, neuroplasticity mm -hmm. and, and all the ways that then we can, once we remove those factors that either cause the problem or perpetuating the problem, um, you know, then there's, I mean, it's its own field. So many new ways are coming out to stimulate the brain, you know, between, you know, neurofeedback and, you know, um, uh, some of the photobiomodulation therapies. And I mean, it's just, it's a whole exciting 
world. When when I went to medical school, which was in the 80s, we were taught that you, by 18, you had all the neurons you were ever going to have, and it was just going to be downhill from there. And that was the teaching. But, you know, now we know that we can make new neurons and new synaptic connections up until the time of death. There was a really cool study uh, some years ago where they took people who were about to die and they put them in the uh, spec scanner and they had them do tasks that were activating their memory centers and they were able to show that even a very terminally ill person uh, later in life could still make these new connections in their brain. So that's the super exciting stuff. If we can remove what's causing the dementia or the neurodegeneration um, before it's too late, then we have you know all kinds of ways now to re-stimulate our brains and get them back to functioning better. That's so exciting and empowering. So I want to go into optimization, but I also don't want to leave out the other things that you mentioned. So hormones, oh. we talked a little bit about. The other two things are, we're talking toxicity and infections. So will you start with toxicity and just give us a little synopsis of how that might affect the brain, what's going on there, and then what you would do about it? Yeah, well, you know, the the, the two broad categories of toxins are chemical toxins and metals, the heavy metals, right? The mercury, the lead, the thallium, the arsenic, those kind of things. And, um, you know, you don't even have to watch the news very often to know that our, our world is sadly getting so toxic and you know we we let things get away from us and so we're all exposed to so much in in the way of toxins both the medical metal toxins and the chemical toxins so the chemical toxins the one that's most widely known about these days because of all of the publicity and lawsuits is roundup or glyphosate and um i mean re- when I test my patients, I you know if I test them, I mean for my cognitive patients, of course I test them all for for toxins, and I actually kind of stopped testing for the Roundup levels unless people really wanted to know and wanted to spend the extra hundred dollars to find out because I did not find anybody without Roundup levels at least in the yellow zone. Right. Yeah. Same. I, we run that on everyone, and I would agree. Right. Consistently, it, it's it, in the yellow. I mean, and occasionally you're going to get it, you know, higher. I just had had a patient yesterday and hers was in the orange zone, which was almost to the red zone. Um, And on her chemical toxin panel, um, which would tell us the story, she had several things in the red and, you know, quite a few things in the orange. And I said to her, you know, this just tells me you're a poor detoxifier, right? Mm -hmm. Your genetics and whatever else is happening is that you, you don't detoxify well, that you've accumulated more toxins than the average bear at this age. Um, One of my patients, uh, one of my cognitive patients, uh, very early on, she came to me, she was already in assisted living and she very quickly transitioned to memory care. So she was going down fast and um, and we tested all kinds of things, and she did have some um, some problems with her lipids um, that were enough to definitely cause some cardiovascular issues with a little bit of vascular dementia. But I couldn't. I didn't really think it was enough to to um, to be the whole picture. She also hadn't had hormones in in a while. Um, but then the uh, the the test came out that we could test the toxins, and this woman had nine chemicals in the red zone. Oh, wow. 
And as as you know, Heather, the teaching is one thing in the red zone is significant or yes. two things in the yellow zone are significant. She had nine things in the red. I mean, she was just a toxic stew. Well, what do you think she did? We ask people, what kind of work did you do? Where did you grow up? Did you grow up, you know, next to fields where they were spraying pesticides and crop dusting? Do you work in the hairdressing industry doing hair dye on people? No, she was a school teacher. Oh, my gosh. So she was where a school was it teacher. From? She, I don't. I think it's just her genetics. She was a school teacher, and her daughter said, "You know, my parents were always into health. We ate clean. We didn't use chemicals in our house. You know, I mean, they had a pretty clean lifestyle. And so that's, you know, it's sort of the luck of the draw with the genetics." I said to her fifty-something-year-old daughter, "I said, you know, uh, you're not my patient, but you know, if you want, I'll order this test for you. You need to know for yourself your own risks." And and her daughter ended up. Um, fairly high in the toxins as well. So, so how important do you think it is to eat organic? Oh, I think that's a, a huge thing that we can and we should do. And, you know, I know it's an expense, but the expense is pay now or pay later. Right. Uh, Right. Because if you don't and you accumulate all these toxins, they have profound effects on all of our endocrine system. So they start affecting, you know, the hormones, they start affecting the various organs like the liver and the kidneys that are trying hard to detoxify these chemicals. And um, as we've been talking about, they they many of them are neurodegenerative and, and affect the brain as well. So I think that it's hugely important to eat organic. And I can tell you that I have personally eaten organic for uh, well over 20 years, all my family. And I got really sick in 2009. And I've eaten religiously organic. I, I, you know, curtailed eating out and all of those factors. And when I did the tox test, I also am a poor detoxifier. I think I had uh, two things in the red and a bunch of things in the yellow. And and I did test the glyphosate or Roundup levels on my husband and my son and myself. And again, we had eaten organic for 20 years and we were all in the yellow zone there. So even eating organic isn't enough. We need mm-hmm. to take further measures to keep detoxifying ourselves. Right. And, and so I think one of your questions was, well, like, what do you what do you do about that? And and the um, the the chemical toxins into uh, and the metals as well. Um, one of the the most effective ways that we can eliminate those first obviously we don't want to be putting them into our body we want to watch what we put on our face and our hair and our skin you know they found that a lot of lipsticks have uh, lead in them and uh, was it lead or mercury I think. lead yeah there's a ton of lead they don't have to say what's in makeups right like you you turn around a nutrition label on a yogurt or on a you know anything you find in the grocery store and it says exactly what's in there and with makeups they never have to tell you so you can be kissing your child with red lipstick full of lead you can be putting blush on your cheeks every day that has lead in it right and it's it's um I mean, anything that we put on our skin, people don't seem to quite grasp this, but we have a lot of medications that we give people on their skin because the skin can absorb, you know, things very easily. And so it's the same as putting it in your mouth and into your system, putting it on your skin. People, people have to know that. So the way that we get rid of this stuff is sweating. 
And, you know, we encourage our patients to um, do sauna as much as possible. Um, people that, that are having cognitive problems and have high levels of toxins, um, trying to get them to actually do a daily sauna um, is the goal. And, of course, you know, people don't don't always they're not able to do that but i mean there was a beautiful study that came out of finland in this last year and they looked at the how much the men in the study used sauna and their incidence of alzheimer's and they found that the men who did daily saunas had a very low incidence of alzheimer's and the men who did it three times a week the level was higher um, and then the people who did it once a week, it was higher, the risk of getting Alzheimer's and, you know, than the people who didn't do it at all. So, um, again, that's an association. It doesn't tell us directly that the sauna prevented their Alzheimer's, but it was large numbers of people. It was a very compelling study. And um, we've, you've, um, Heather, you've probably been to some of the lectures with Dr. Stephen Genuis from uh, Toronto, I believe, uh, uh, an MD PhD up there who's, you know, he's shown us the data that when you sweat, you know, these metals and these toxins do come out through your sweat. Oh, yeah. There was a white paper that came out when I was in um, at Bastyr, and it was about the 9-11 first responders and how many of them had symptoms and following that event and, and those exposures and how they were able to get a lot of that down. And they, they were trusting, I think, probably through the same labs that you and I use yeah. now. And, and they could watch them fall. And it had to do with the, the dose response was to how many times they could get in the sauna and for how long and how much they were sweating. So sweating is a very, very effective way to get uh, to get the toxins out. Now, the caveat there being replacing electrolytes, staying yes. safe, especially with somebody who has, who has dementia, um, making sure that there's someone around and with them, it's an, that they're not passing out in the sauna, right. especially. Right. Um, right. It's not without risk, even though it's so effective. Take a buddy, right. drink lots of water, replace your electrolytes. Yes, t yes, definitely. I, I, I give my patients a multi-mineral um, formula and I say, take this on the days that you sweat. If mm -hmm. you're getting you know, up above 20 minutes, go ahead and, and take that. And the other caveat with the sweating is, of course, that you need to be wiping it off. Rinsing. So as you sweat, right, to tell mm -hmm. people, have the towel with you, keep wiping it off, and then jump in the shower as soon as you're done. And, you know, you, you, want, you don't want to reabsorb those toxins that you just worked hard to eliminate. Yeah. So the saunas are fantastic. What else is super important when it comes to getting rid of toxins? Well, you know, there's there's all kinds of different things that you can take. Some people do, depending on the level, say, of the metals, people will, will do, you know, different types of chelation. Um, people take different types of binders to bind those things up. Some people do IV chelation. Some people do protocols with um, oral chelators like the DMSA couple different versions of that uh, you, you know it's not really safe to take every day but you can take it for a couple days on like three days on and 11 days off mm -hmm. or uh, a newer protocol was two days on and five days off um, and replacing the the minerals as well when you when you're taking a chelator because it's trying to bind up you know, metals and minerals are in that category. Um, so there's there's a lot of different ways to come at that depending on um you know, the levels that people have, what can they do as far as compliance with those various things. You're, you're doing some IV chelation, right, at your clinic? Yeah, we're doing some IV chelation. There, 
right now in the state of California, or it might be federally, because I think it is coming down from the FDA, you can't get DMPS, IV DMPS anymore. So we're having mm-hmm. to constantly change the protocol based on what we can get and what we can what we can offer to patients. And, you know, for better or worse, we'll adapt. We, we always have before. And, and the fundamentals don't change, right? It, what we want to do is bind that. So find the, I think of it as like a molecular magnet. So whatever has an, a binding affinity for the toxin that we we find on on the testing right you've highlighted so well that this is an individualized approach right it depends on what is what we find in the testing then we can create a plan that works for that patient and so figuring out binding affinity if it's lead we want to use more of the EDTA if it's mercury more of the DMSA or the DMPS um, they what we've seen over the years over the studies is that there's different affinities and then what's available, what's practical. Some people can't afford the IV chelation. Some people can't get in to do them because you have to do them in the office. So then we've got to come up with an oral protocol. And and that's fine. It works over time as long as you've got the right binders and you have the bowels open and you're sweating and you've got as much as possible on board. Then over time we see them fall and people get better. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So do you um, look at mycotoxins or biotoxins at all? Yes. So I kind of I kind of lump those under the, the heading of infections. It's not quite an infection like an uh, but you know we, the mycotoxin is um, I guess we could call it intermediate between toxins. This is a great infections. segue from from toxins yeah. to infections. All right, it's the overlap. So I think the the role of mold and mycotoxins in neurodegeneration is huge. I think we're just learning of the, that it's the tip of the iceberg. And I've had so many cases that affected their brains so profoundly. I had a good friend of mine, very close friend, who uh, lived in a beautiful house on the water on the San Francisco Bay. And I would go to visit and I'd always get a headache. And I said, you know, there's mold in this house. It's my That's my warning system with the mold. And she got sicker and sicker. Mm-hmm. And she got to the point that she couldn't talk. Uh, there's a type of frontotemporal dementia called logopenic aphasia where you cannot get the words to come out of your mouth. You have the thought in your head, but you cannot speak. And she would say, uh, uh, and you know, and the, uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, and, uh, and it was so painful oh, because she could really, she couldn't even articulate what she wanted to say. She uh, couldn't figure out how to feed herself. She was just so profoundly demented. And I said, we have to get you out of here. Um, you, you need to get out of this house right away. And so she, um, she sold the house took her some time to get organized enough to get out of there but she went to a retreat center in upstate New York where they ate raw food for 30 days and did coffee enemas for detox every day and it was a miracle at the end of 30 days she was almost back to normal oh wow that's incredible and to see- this, I mean, she would have died, you know, she, I mean, it was just so profound. And um, I've, I've had patients, uh, I mean, I have a great case right now that I've been working with that you know, came in with early dementia, and she had several other risk factors. And you ask people about the mold in their house, and they often say, No, we don't have any, no, we haven't had any leaks, but they'll start to remember things. Mm-hmm. You know, later it's worth asking over and over you know for people uh and 
it turned out that this woman, the house that she was living in, the walls were covered with black. I mean, oh, covered. No. Covered. I'm like, the house needs to be bulldozed. I mean, it was horrific. And um, and she lived there with her long-term romantic partner. It was his home. And it wasn't making him sick. And he just didn't want to believe it. Um, and they spent part of the time back and forth going to Arizona and living in a trailer. And she would feel better when she left the home. Well, you know, fast forward as we did more and more testing and got more and more markers and clarity that, you know, she was internally colonized with mold. Um, he, she finally said to her partner, I'm going to have to move out. You know, I'm sorry that you don't understand this, but I, I have to preserve myself. And she loved him. She didn't want to leave him. Mm-hmm. But, and so finally, when it came to that, that she said, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and, and move out, um, that he he kicked, you know, he understood at some point and he he helped and bought her a, a beautiful um, jet stream green trailer that she's mm-hmm. living in. And you know, she's been recovering by leaps and bounds. And she, um, one of the factors, as as you know, we often will look at the visual contrast sensitivity testing for people that are being exposed to mold. And we know that the mold um, affects the retina very uh, significantly. And it'll affect your ability to pick up contrast. You, you might not notice your vision's off, but when you do this test and they have little lines going one way and little lines another and some are more faint and, and um, people getting exposed to mold very often will fail this test. Well, she failed the test and um, she bought a package where she could test as much as she wanted. And after she left, she kept testing, testing, testing. She was testing every day. She was sending me so <laughs> test and there came that miracle day when this very bad test came back very good i was just you know jumping up and down for her um so you know it's a way that we can track and see that you know the the effects of those mycotoxins you know directly on those neurons to her eye and what was happening there so um the mold is a it's such a tricky thing um, it doesn't make everyone sick, but if you have enough exposure to one that's toxic enough, it will make everyone sick. Um, but there's a, some intermediate molds that some people seem to do okay with and other people are very sensitive to. Um, I have all of my cognitive patients test their home. We use the, the Mycometrics ERMI testing and collect the dust in the home. And um, we do the different Sears chronic inflammatory response syndrome lab markers uh, in the blood to look at things. And those Sears markers are not specific. They're general neuroinflammatory markers. And we do see them abnormal in almost all of our cognitive patients. But there's different patterns that you start to recognize. It's a pattern recognition sometimes that will tell me, you know, this looks like mold or no, this doesn't look like mold, but it might be you know, I should be looking for Lyme disease or other kinds of infections. Um, so it's it's kind of an indirect way to test as many things as we can to to try to figure out what might be happening with the mold exposure. Yeah, so there's some nuance there, um, and it certainly takes a trained provider to, to sort through all of that. So the you just mentioned Lyme. Tell me about the infections that can affect the brain and can lead towards dementia. How do you look for them? What are they? And then what do you do about them? Yeah, I mean, it's another huge factor. Um, the 
uh, I mean, Lyme disease in particular is a spirochete and so is syphilis, right? Lyme is in the same category of microorganisms as syphilis. So again, we've known for over a century that syphilis affects the brain. And, you know, the classic uh, scenario was a man got an STD and then it went away. And, you know, then 20 years down the road, he went crazy. And so the Lyme disease has the same predilection for the brain, um, it, it seems like it goes in the joints or the brain. You'll have some people that have major joint involvement and don't have the brain involvement, or you'll have some people that have brain involvement that have no joint involvement. And those patients have been the ones especially that are getting missed. But historically, much of Lyme has been getting missed because it was this malign disease that, you know, again, one of our other weird public relation things that it that it didn't exist and that it was overdiagnosed and you know now the CDC has finally reversed our stance on that because it's now spread all over the country you know it's in virtually every state of the country here in California it is it's been found in every single county of California um, in the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area, where I live, we have a very high incidence of Lyme disease. And um, in my own cognitive patients, I haven't counted it lately, but I think I've had about about at least five patients with IgM positive active Lyme disease. Wow. Um, and, you know, it's... I mean, I have a small practice that's not that many people, you know, but to have such high numbers like that, um, it's it's a really, um, it's a significant factor. And the and, testing here is pretty convoluted. So you just said IgM, active Lyme, and is that through LabCorp or are you doing Igenics? There's so much, so many options here and varying experts have different opinions. There's a lot of contradiction. Right. What's your approach to that? Um, so... If someone has Medicare, then I will use the Igenix Lyme testing, their tick-borne panel one that's got all the co-infections with it and tests in various ways. Um, but that panel is over $1,400, and it is covered by Medicare, but it's not covered by commercial insurance. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so if you're under 65... I tend to start by using a, a company called MDL, uh, Medical Diagnostics Lab, and their Western blot testing for Lyme covers all of the potential bands. Um, when we when we test for Lyme, they're looking at do you make antibodies to different uh, facets of the Lyme proteins and they run on an electrophoretic gel and, and they stain and, and the stain shows little bands for different proteins. and so the, in the Quest and LabCorp testing, they don't test all of the possible bands because originally the CDC said you have to throw out those bands because they were in the Lyme vaccine. And if you've taken the Lyme vaccine, they're going to come up positive. Well, the Lyme vaccine was very short-lived and hardly anybody took it. So, and if you took it, you know you took it. I've never, I've never met anyone that took the Lyme vaccine. So, um, so MDL is useful because it's going to look at all those bands and it also quantifies it so you can kind of see like, was it almost positive? Is it kind of there? Or conversely, you can get somebody that's so strongly positive. So you, you can actually get a, a number that's helpful there. Now, so that's kind of the first level is to look at the standard um, Western blot testing. But there's a cohort of people that will never test positive at all on the Western blot because 
we're looking at whether your immune system made antibodies. So we're measuring the antibodies there. And Lyme tends to suppress the immune system in some people. And so like, like most things in functional medicine, I learned them all on myself. I'm one of those people that never tested positive on any Western blot test through the years, even though I had symptoms at various times that were quite classic for Lyme. And um, I have immune dysfunction. I have low immunoglobulins. I have low natural killer cells. I have low T cells. So I don't mount enough of an immune response to ever make those antibodies. Um, in my own case, uh, what we, we started doing, even if we do have bands or we don't have bands and we still have suspicion, we've started sending to Armin Labs in Germany. And um, Armin Labs test a T cell response. So the antibodies are made by the B cells. And the T cells are another part of our immune response. And uh, it's more sensitive than the B cells. So um, the, the owner of that lab is Armin Schwarzbach. And Dr. Schwarzbach said, um, the T cells are 20 to 200 times more sensitive than the B cells in the Western blot. So um, if he said, if there is an active infection, your T cells should be responding. And after the infection clears, within four to eight weeks, the T cell response should go to nothing. And so that testing has been really, really helpful for us to say, because sometimes we get all these bands and antibodies, but maybe somebody's cleared the infection and they don't need more treatment. We just have to deal with the immune fallout of the infection. Or sometimes maybe the infection is still there and we need to maybe more directly beyond supporting their immune system, we might need to add more antimicrobials. So that that uh, T-cell testing out of Germany has been super helpful. That's really exciting. Support. I hadn't even heard of that yet. So oh, thank you oh, for well, sharing. Yeah. I'm yes. <laughs> really it's excited. Wonderful. It's been a wonderful part of, of the Arm Mentarium. And um, um, I mean, there is genetic testing, the PCR testing, mm -hmm. uh, DNA connections. And, and yeah. the problem with PCR testing is I don't think it's ready for prime time yet. Mm -hmm. have to go to extraordinary levels in the lab to prevent cross-contamination. And um, my husband, who's an academic bioengineering professor, told me he's seen the academic labs and what they have to do to prevent that cross-contamination. And he said the commercial labs are not doing that. Oh. So, so that one of the criticisms of DNA connections was like they were over-diagnosing people with things. And, and so, you know, I, I just, I, I don't have enough experience with that, you know, to know, because I have some colleagues that say it's super helpful and it diagnoses things and they treat it and people get better. Um, but, but I think the, the bottom line is to understand that not everyone is going to mount the the band response mm -hmm. on the western blot and and so you need to you know look at the t-cell and um and maybe look at the genetics if you still have questions and one of the other things that comes up is that Borrelia burgdorferi is what i think lab core tests for right so if you're doing a test and, and you're talking about lyme people typically mean borrelia and then there's all the other co-infections one of the questions around borrelia is, is are there are there Borrelias other than Burgdorferi? So are, yes. are there's a bunch of them. And that T-cell test in Germany, does it test for other for, uh, species of Borrelia? Uh, yeah, I believe it's a combination of things. And they give you three different markers on the Borrelia um, 
that they'll give numbers to and let me try to remember what it looks like one is a total thing with all the species and then one is an outer surface protein Mm -hmm. and one is a marker of Borrelia that more points to an immune response interesting so so they give you three three different markers on that here in California they say that uh, a large majority of the um, Lyme infections is Borrelia miyamotoi right and uh, I think you can do PCR testing for that now on Quest, but we don't have uh, antibody testing there. You can get that on the Igenix testing. I just wish it wasn't so darn expensive. Expensive, I know. Gosh, I love this job because I am. I learn every time I interview someone, and this has been so informative and helpful. So we're, you know, I will take this and go back to my office and figure out how to get that test available to to my patients. So thank you for sharing that, Kat. Of course. You know what? I wanted to say one more thing before we leave this topic, and I actually want to hop back to the one about the metals. Um, I was pausing trying to remember what I wanted to tell you and it came to me. So one of my good friends and colleagues, Mirto Ash, um, is a a functional medicine practitioner in San Rafael in in Marin County. And we work closely together in a couple different study groups. And, you know, we share our papers and our stuff every day all the time. And Mirto just presented a paper at the IFM annual conference um, that was just a summary of what she was seeing with all of her cognitive patients. And so she took, I think she had, you know, maybe 50 patients that she had seen, and she just was looking at some of the demographics and what was she seeing. And a very interesting finding in her cohort was that her cognitive patients' mercury levels were on average twice as high as normal age match controls or what she would have expected. Wow. Okay. So mercury is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. especially in Marin. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the, with environmental disease, I often wonder if that comes up. You know, we, we had talked about the toxin panel. I happen to run it through Great Plains. And the first one is MTBE. And I right. said something to Dr. Shaw about that at one point because everybody was coming up really high. Now, I'm in Southern California. My office is less than a mile from I-5. And yeah. most people live and commute and work around in and around this massive freeway and he he said you know where do you practice as soon as I said that I was I that was his first question he knew the answer he knew that I lived and worked around a major freeway and so when when we talk about this I remember I I did my undergrad up in San Francisco and everyone in Marin was getting breast cancer for a long time and that's probably still the case and they wondered okay what what is the environment the probable environmental cause here and it makes me curious if maybe there's a mercury exposure um, that that her patients have been exposed to that might be just a matter of where they live yeah I think you know uh, I mean of, of course you know we see in places where the water is contaminated or we're going to be seeing a lot out of Flint, Michigan, you know, the sequelae of what happened there is just so it's just unbelievably tragic but but yes, these are there are factors everywhere. Certainly here in the San Francisco Bay Area, everybody I attest, you know, has some elevation in the MTBE, and um, and it's even higher in you know my generation of people that we grew up with the leaded gasoline. Right. So that made it. That made it 
it worse. But yeah, it would be fascinating to to have uh, Great Plains Lab, you know, try to just pull some demographic data and show us like different parts of the country or even the world, like to do some of this testing in places where they still have the leaded gasoline, um, you know, and what's happening between both the serum lead levels and, you know, these urine toxin mm-hmm. levels, um, because I, I do think it's a factor. There's so much amazing research that could go on and, and data we could pull. If you could pick one single question, what would it be? I really want to know more about the infections. Um, I think the infections are a huge trigger for an immune response in the brain. They're turning on the microglia and, you know, that is leading to all kinds of problems. So um, personally, I've found it very difficult to try to um, make lists and understand which infections are uh, affecting the brain. And I do have a, a maybe a two-page list of, you know, I try to research different ones, but um, I'd really like to see more data coming out about specific infections because it's it's really trying to figure out, you know, which ones do we test? How much do we test? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the viruses are, we know are a huge factor and, um, uh, some wonderful research came out of, was it Singapore or somewhere in that region of the world in this past year, huge numbers of patients, you know, 20,000, 30,000 uh, subjects. And they looked at people who had ever taken a course of acyclovir, um, which is an antiviral that's used for herpes outbreaks. And they found that people who had taken a single course or more of acyclovir had something like a 20-time lower risk for Alzheimer's. Wow. And this is, you know, again, this doesn't tell us that the acyclovir prevented the Alzheimer's. It didn't say that the herpes virus caused the Alzheimer's. But we know that when they do autopsies of people who died with Alzheimer's, um, I mean, this was known, gosh, when I was still, you know, doing research in the early 2000s, that something like 99% of people that died with Alzheimer's had high levels of herpes simplex 1 in their brain. Well, herpes simplex 1 is pretty ubiquitous, like, you know, I don't know the exact number, but it's like 80-something percent of us have had, you know, that at some time. But, you know, that's the cold sores, fever blisters. and um, But those viruses stay in our body, and they go and hang out in our brain. And, and so as long as our immune system is strong, our immune system will keep those viruses intact. But, you know, the viruses, anything that's uh, that hurts our immune system, be it emotional trauma, head trauma, you know, some other kind of sickness or lack of hormones. So the neurons aren't as healthy or not enough fat. We kind of didn't talk about the role of cholesterol and fat in the brain, but you know, it means I have problems with patients whose cholesterol is too low to support their brain function. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's another trophic factor, but, but then these viruses can just, of course, wake up and reactivate and when we have an active virus replicating in our brain, what's going to happen? Our immune cells are going to get in gear to fight those invaders. And the way they fight that is they release these inflammatory cytokines and it can end up as amyloid in the brain. And um, so that's my that's the area that I really want to know and understand more about is the role of infections and viruses and, um, you know, which ones are are doing what so that we can more adequately, you know, test and address those for people. I think one of the things that comes up with my patients and in having these conversations is that 
a lot of patients assume that you can just test for all the viruses, all the viruses right. that could possibly exist in my in my body and all the bacteria that could possibly right. exist in my body. Just do a panel and, and show me what's there. And it doesn't right. really work like that. We have to ask the question, is HHV6 here? Is HSV1 and 2 here? Is, you know, we have to identify and say, is that virus here? Is that bacteria here? Instead right. of just like growing it out and seeing what flourishes, right? It's it's not like that. And so when we're doing, when we're exercising that, when we're, when we're making that decision about who, do we ask whether or not that virus is here or that bacteria is here, we need to have some direction. Um, and it gets really expensive, especially if your insurance doesn't happen to cover these different tests. And then just as we've talked about with Lyme, there's a ton of complexity in terms of how you get a good test and whether that test is accurate. So it's not right. as simple as just test me for all the viruses and test me for all the bacteria and then we'll see what shows up. Um, so I, I love where your head's at in terms of finding out more about what are the roles that the virus is playing clearly from that, that Asian study you, you quoted, there is a, a massive role. Um, and then kind of begging the question, okay, well then why, why is that stimulating so much inflammation in some people and not in others? And what are the differences? And is there some way that we could use that information to make people who are succumbing more like the people who aren't? Right. Well, and I think it takes us back to our functional medicine basics. So, you know, the first way we treat is the terrain, right? We work with the terrain and, the, you know, the, you know, the probiotics and, you know, what, what's happening because that's the root of our immune system. So the answer isn't always to go and kill every virus. It's how do we strengthen the immune system so that it can keep those in check? Mm-hmm. And that takes us back to food and sleep and meditation and, and all of those factors, you know, because those things are so easy for people to say, well, I want to do something active. I want to kill this bug. Well, you know, that I don't go after killing things, you know, early in treatment. I have mm-hmm. to, you know, get all the other factors working better for people before I would give any antimicrobials. Um, but, but on the other hand, I've, I mean, I, I, you know, I have a, a wonderful protocol that, um, that I got from Todd Bourne, naturopathic doctor, who is the medical director at Allergy Research. And I sent him a patient referral to get some IV vitamin C for her reactivated Epstein-Barr. And he wrote me and he said, you know, I could do this because I have this great protocol. It works for like, you know, 90, 95% of people. And, um, and, you know, we've been using his protocol a lot and it doesn't work for everybody. And sometimes I have to go to plan B protocol, but some people have dramatic improvements in their energy and their, you know, ability to exercise and, you know, their, their brain fog by diminishing their load of the Epstein-Barr. Uh, you know, so, but then it's a difficult thing. People say, well, can you check my levels? Well, it's hard to follow because as you clear more infection, your IgG levels could go even higher. So what you said, um, to me actually made me think of a, a wonderful opportunity for, you know, somebody entrepreneurial in the lab testing world though, that, you know, couldn't somebody come up with an assay that could run through a bunch of different, you know, of these viruses um, and bacteria and, you know, all of the CMV and the, you know, everything else that we're looking at. Um, I mean, I know that uh, True Health Labs, I can get a, on four tubes of blood, I can get like a 12 
plus page report of lab findings. Mm -hmm. So they have some way to use little amounts of blood to, you know, run all kinds of testing. And and I think that technology is improving. I mean, um, other than the the failure of what Theranos offered us, you know, that people are going to be suspicious of any kind of disheartening. But, uh, you know, you think in some, there must be some way that uh, people in that field could come up with some better assays where we could test a bunch of things at once. I mean, I've seen workups. I sent somebody uh, to see Amy Joy Smith, who's the pandas expert, and I, I got back multiple pages of all of these esoteric viruses that she was testing, um, but they all have a potential role on the brain. And, and you know, if you have the one, I mean, sometimes it is important to know which one. I um, I... I worked up a 12-year-old that had bad OCD and tics, and I don't normally work with children, um, but uh, this I had a connection to this family, and I said, listen, let me offer, I'll just do the workup for you, let me see what I can come up with, and then we can refer you to somebody who is um, trained in working with children. Well, you know, uh, pandas um, in in children where they have acute onset of severe OCD and sometimes tics and behavioral problems, mm-hmm. it's most classically related to a strep infection. Right. And in this child, he didn't have any strep antibodies, and um, that wasn't the problem. But what came up was that he had very high mycoplasma levels. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going over the findings with his mother and... And I said, mycoplasma has been reported to trigger a panda's effect. And her eyes got wide and she said, and this was a brilliant mother and she had studied everything, taken him everywhere. I mean, she was a fierce mother. You want a mother like that in your court when you have a serious illness. And she said, oh my God, he had walking pneumonia and we couldn't get rid of it. And he had several courses of antibiotics for the walking pneumonia. And shortly after that is when the ticks started and then the OCD started. Mm. Oh, poor kid. And it, so is he getting the help he needs? Yes, he's oh, doing well. well. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I heard from one of the family members. She said, oh, we just had this big gathering and we were all talking about you because, oh. you know, we're so excited because he, this kid is getting his life back instead That's of being relegated to a lifetime of psychiatric disorder, of medications and disability. <sighs> Poor kid, man. Wow. Well, that is, that's such a hopeful story. Thank you for sharing that because it, it, it I think that it does, it comes full circle here, right? Like you, your work has been in psychiatry, not just in dementia. And so seeing so many people thrown off course and then asking the question why maybe they don't need to be in a psychiatric institution or on a bunch of medications. If we could figure out the why, then there's hope that people could go back to living a normal life, contributing to their communities, their families, the world. And so thank you for the work that you are doing in that. Um, Kat, it has just been an absolute pleasure. I have to chuckle because we tried to make this happen literally three other times. And I was rear-ended on the way to one of our um, meetings, our our, uh, scheduled podcast recordings. The second time, I was literally in labor having my baby. And the third time, I had laryngitis. And today has been so much fun. It was so worth the wait. The fourth time's a charm. Thank you for your patience on my end. Oh, Um, no. I knew it would happen. (laughs) So next steps for you. You have a book coming out. Would you tell everybody what the name what that is so that we can all be looking for it on Amazon. 
Yes, thank you. Um, the name of the book is called Dementia Demystified, and it's got a rather long subtitle that uh, I can't quite remember <laughs> the name of, but Dementia Demystified. And and um, and I'm structuring it really as a how-to kind of book rather than an academic book. Uh, so many people do training on the cognitive decline through IFM but are consulting with me because they still don't know how to test, what to do, how to monitor. So um I'm trying to make it as practical um, as possible so that patients can take it to their physicians and ask for this workup and physicians that are treating it will know better how to to more effectively, um, you know, especially, I mean, the first step is assessment. Um, and then I just really want to keep highlighting the message out to the world that dementia is not a death sentence. And um, as I mentioned in brief, I, I learned it on myself and was quite demented. And um, and I realize now the path that I went through is helpful for other people to know that, that dementia happens for reasons. And we just have to find all these reasons. And, um, and if we can fix all those things, then we can get the brain to heal. What a gift. Thank you for taking the time and doing the work that goes into writing that book and getting that information out there, because I have no doubt that it will be profoundly effective for many, many, many people. Kat, if anyone wanted to schedule with you, if they wanted to consult, um, where would they find you? I know that you were busy writing a book and managing a practice and doing so much, but if they wanted to reach out, um, what, what would be the best way to get a hold of you? Well, um, I'm actually not taking any new patients at this point because um, between my practice and starting the clinical trial, there's only so much of me to go around. Um, but the website is um, bayareawellness.net or actually the dementiademystified.com will route there as well now. Um, and a good place is to, to look on Facebook. I have a nice work Facebook site and I really try to post lots of cutting edge information about the brain and um, about dementia and about psychiatric issues. And if you just put my name in the uh, Facebook group, uh, search Cat Toops, the, if it's just my name, it's going to be my personal site. But the work site says Cat Toops Functional Medicine, Psychiatry and Dementia. And um, I, I have a nice active group of followers there. And I think that's a good way to get some more information. Fantastic. Thank you for making that available. Kat, it has been so fun to have you here today. I absolutely love talking to you and hope that there are many more conversations in the future um, where we can bounce ideas off of each other and continue to advance this super important field of um, getting help to people with dementia and getting a, a cure, really. So thank you so, so much for being here with us. And um, we'll look forward to the next one. Yes, thank you so much for having me. And maybe we can talk about um, psychiatry and mental health. Absolutely. Both work in that area as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 we don't we don't just have to focus on the old people, right? We can we can start talking about people with their lots of life ahead of them, too. So, yes, we'll plan to have you back for part two, talking about um, psychiatric disorders. So stay tuned for that one. Thank you so much again, Kat. Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Dr. Kat Toops. Remember, this podcast is made possible by Neurohacker Collective. Use the coupon code PODCAST51, all lowercase, PODCAST51, for 15% off your first order at neurohacker.com. 
If you have any questions about this content, please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com slash podcast, and we'll work to get those answered by Dr. Toops on a future episode. If you like this episode, then please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share it with a friend. We want this episode to be shared because it has the power to transform people's health and ultimately their lives. So if you know someone with dementia and is in search of the latest research on possible treatments, then will you please share it with them? And make sure to subscribe to Collective Insights wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.